You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Music. Thank each of you for coming out tonight on a hot summer day. Feels like a spring day in Houston, Texas. Just called my parents today and they said it's actually hotter here than back home. But I would invite you to turn with me to Job chapter 2. We continue on. This is the fourth part in our series on the story of Job, trusting God in the depths, gaining a biblical view of suffering and hardship and trusting the Lord Almighty. If you recall last time, uh, Job had, had a stellar performance of overcoming temptation of the devil and persevered without sinning with his lips when tempted to curse God. In our text tonight, we find Job sinking, approaching the rock-bottom pit of despair. This is one of those profound passages of deep lament, perhaps the darkest passage in all of Scripture in comparison to Lamentations, Psalm 88, the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, I believe to, to modern ears, Job's cry of the soul is like raking one's fingernails across the chalkboard. It's unsettling. We are not, we don't like suffering. And the cry of raw pain and sorrow in the antiseptic society that we find ourselves in. Nonetheless, hearing the cursing and despair of a godly man. Nevertheless, I want to invite you tonight to listen to the beauty, the dignity, the tragedy, and even the redemption of Job's words. And I believe they resonate with our hearts as we long for the consolation that is found in God alone in the midst of our trials. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 11, and through chapter 3. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light that night. May thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. 
Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer shout, no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death does not, that does not come, who search for it more than for a hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sign comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded was happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us pray. Father, in some sense we are dumbstruck by the gravity, the penetrating angst of a man with raw turmoil and sorrow. Father, you have revealed this in your word to help us see the depths of misery that befall us in a broken and twisted world. And yet, Lord, there is hope in the midst of this passage. Help us, O oh Lord, to find it, to trust in you, and to see your goodness and your graciousness, even in the midst of great hardship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember many years ago, my family taking a trip out to Atlanta, Georgia, to celebrate my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. And there we had a grand event of celebration at the historic Peachtree Presbyterian Church, where my grandmother and grandfather were the guest of honor for their own 50th celebration. But in the midst of the night, we noticed some behavior from my grandmother that was very unsettling. Rudeness, uh, belittling speech towards our, my grandfather, and doing things that really made us embarrassed and ashamed. I remember my father being most upset at the behavior of his mother and wrote her this stern letter of rebuke. And the fallout from that was a very tense relationship for a while. And it was soon after that that my parents discovered my grandmother was coming down with Alzheimer's disease. And as they learned more about the disease, the way it affects the mind and the brain, oftentimes the consequences are bizarre behavior, rude speech, cursing, things that were completely uncharacteristic of a godly woman who loved her husband well. No doubt many of you have had similar experiences with the elderly, with loved ones, with people suffering afflictions of many kinds, sorrow and hardship, 
disease, it's a shock. It leaves loved ones and family members in great dismay to see people we revere and respect to speak and behave in ways that make us ashamed. How disturbing to hear a saintly man or woman reeling with curses and deep despair. I imagine if one of us had been Job's friends, hearing this stalwart of the faith, calling down curses upon himself, crying out for death, no doubt that would have been a very disturbing experience. And such is the case, whether disease or hardship, weighing pressure upon the mind and the heart of man. We disintegrate, and we descend into the depths of our brokenness and our fallen nature. We find many trends in our society today in trying to counter these great plagues and problems. It seems, in my assessment, there's a great allergy against suffering or hardship of any kind. And we're this constant quest for a cure. Whether medically related, psychological, legal. We're desperately seeking to eliminate pain and suffering. Almost at any cost. As we approach this text tonight, I want us to allow to challenge our view of suffering. Our view of pain and death. And to make us think about how we pursue God's glory in a fallen world. Our text brings to us a God-fearing man, deep in bitter agony, seeking relief and going through a series of questions, searching for consolation, searching for refuge, searching for escape. In this fallen world, we want a cure for suffering and all too often go seeking that escape in unhealthy ways. But the biblical and time-tested, God-provided cure is only at the place of Calvary. Now, I remember when we last saw Job, he was heroically rebuking his wife, who had become a tool in the hands of Satan to tempt him to curse and turn away from God. Having added insult to injury, all of his losses now... Job is alone, having been alienated from his dear companion. And in our text in chapter 2, we see the great relief that Job will be spared the curse of loneliness. He will be visited by friends. Now the names and place names of these friends uh, indicate an intertribal or perhaps international community of persons. Job, the greatest man of the East would have likely had many friends, traders, merchants, leaders of various kinds, people who loved him, both for his wealth and his integrity. Proverbs 14, 20 is candid to report that the poor is disliked even by his neighbors, but the rich has many friends. And what appears at first, these men are quality friends. They have heard the report of Job's suffering and they have come to sympathize with him and comfort him in his great agony. 
How many of us could say that we have three good friends? Do you have one person that you could call at 3 o'clock in the morning in a crisis? A marriage that's on the rocks. A child that's run away. A business or a retirement fund that's collapsed. Who would you call? Man in the Mirror, a international men's ministry, reports that 19 out of 20 men in our churches cannot name a single best friend. It seems that our secular, transient, and performance-driven culture is also a lonely one. Yet Job has friends. And despite their later failures, Job's friends in this encounter at least do two things right. Let's observe in verse 12 and 13. It says, when the friends saw Job from a distance, they hardly recognized him. This great stately man, this man robed in dignity and respect, was now a ruin, a wreck. As Job will testify throughout this book, his face was red with weeping. His body covered from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head with festering sores. His skin was black and peeling. His infection led to swollenness and hot fever. The stench of his body and breath would have been offensive to his companions. Repeatedly, Job laments that he has become an object of scorn by his neighbors. And lesser men ridicule him and judge him without pity. It reports that when the three friends saw Job, they wept aloud. They tore their robes and covered themselves with dust. Common customs of that time. It seems that the report had not told them half of it. So they genuinely mourn with their friend. They identify with him. They come to shoulder his burden and not run away with repulsion. In verse 13, secondly, notice that Job's friends say nothing but merely offer him the ministry of presence. And remember, this is not in the comforts of a home or a hospital waiting room. This is in a reeking ash heap. And notice it says they remain silent for seven days and nights. Can you imagine remaining silent, keeping your mouth shut for seven days? Most of us wouldn't last seven minutes. And yet these friends persevere with... Dear Job, a college friend of mine and his wife years ago lost an only daughter to a dreadful disease. And a touching moment in that tragic story was another friend of ours from college flying out from the West Coast to see the friend in Tennessee, not just for the funeral, but to stay with him and his wife for many days to comfort them. And Christian Love and brotherhood. He dropped everything to go be with his friend. For us, when a friend or a fellow Christian suffers tragedy, it is our Christian calling to go to him. To resist the temptation to recoil at the ugliness of suffering. To overcome that stagnation of uncertainty. What do I do? What do I say? Just go. You don't have to say much of anything. 
offer the ministry of your presence. The fact that you are there, communicating your concern and your care, does enormous benefits for healing, often more than the most elegant sermon has to offer. Don't offer cliches. Offer yourself. Do not judge or moralize as Job's friends will unfortunately turn to. But speak of God's goodness. Point the sufferer to Christ. Be gracious. Even if the friend is suffering the consequences of their own foolishness, treat them with respect the way you would want to be treated. Well, as difficult as it must have been to remain silent for seven days, it perhaps was even more gut-wrenching to listen to Job's heart-wrenching lament. Christians sometimes struggle of what to make of Job's lament. This champion of piety who prevailed twice over Satan has now sunk into a pit of cursing and despair. It says in verse 1 that as soon as Job opens his mouth, it gives full vent to his great suffering. He here curses the day of his birth. What do we make of this? Is the sin, is Job backsliding from his godliness? Well, Job 38.2 at the end of the drama, we find God rebuking Job, indicating some kind of wrong. Job having darkened the counsel of the living God. That Job has not spoken completely what is right and true. And yet we can commend Job that he is not cursing God. He's not turning his back on his maker. And yet, by cursing his birth, there is a sense in which he is attacking the providence of God. Job is calling into question God's wisdom and permitting his birth and allowing this great suffering. And Job, in essence, is asking, would it not have been better that I'd never been born? The famous George Bailey question. I mean, it's a wonderful line. In fact, the word for cursing used here is identical with the word describing Goliath cursing David. Or Shimei, the Benjamite, cursing David on his flight from Jerusalem, running away from Absalom. So it's a pretty intense word. And in the midst of that cursing, Job calls upon the darkness to engulf his birth. Essentially saying that no life is better than misery. Well, Job is not alone in this preference not to have been born. We find strikingly similar language from the words of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 20, where he vents a complaint against God. God having set him up, so to speak, for ridicule by his opponents. Jeremiah feels cheated. He wants to run. He wants to be silent, and yet the word of God burns like fire in his bones. And he is compelled to speak. He cannot help it but give expression to God's glorious truth in the midst of his own agony. I, for one, am grateful for Job and for Jeremiah in these heart-wrenching passages because I believe they help us communicate 
the depths of our sorrow. I think one of the worst things a Christian can do is bottle up great pain and tragedy. To pretend to be fine with hypocrisy. Presenting a false stoic image that is of help to nobody. No matter how uncomfortable it may feel to yourself or others, it is healthy to express your sorrow. To wrestle verbally and vocally, publicly even, before other godly Christians. In fact, it's a time of, it's in time of great testing and trial that will prove who your friends really are. In fact, the suffering will be a time of refinement for your faith and in your relationships. But I believe the story of Job here reminds us that God is big enough to hear our complaints. That even when we're not sinless in our words or our thoughts, there is freedom to come to complain, to wrestle, and to seek consolation in the only one who can provide us ultimate comfort when we are distressed with perplexity, confusion, and frustration. Most of us are not quite as elegant as Job, but as Jesus made clear, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, and Job's words betray a heart of darkness. In fact, darkness or its cognates appear about nine times or more in verses 3 through 10. Job's mouth is like a cover over a deep, dark, black pit. In verses 4 through 5, he says, That day, may it turn to darkness, may God above not care about it, may no light shine upon it, may darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it, may blackness overwhelm its light. Here is this theme, this quest of Job, seeking consolation that perhaps, perhaps the darkness will numb the pain, to squelch out the light, keep it away from me. Metaphorically, seeking companionship with the darkness. It's similar to the final line of Psalm 88 where the author writes, the darkness is my closest friend. Why is it in our flesh we want to run and hide? Get away from people, get away from God, be dark and alone in our great misery. And yet as we wrestle with this before scripture, we realize that such quests are futile. The darkness cannot snuff out the light. In fact, it's God who spoke into the darkness with penetrating light and that hope of creation was reborn in redemption. As John reports in his gospel, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. In that great darkness, God can penetrate with radiating and healing light. And yet we sympathize with Job. As we sympathize, a man in deep slumber for whom Light is painful to waking eyes. Those who are in misery, to those who are in misery offering hope, can be like cleaning a wound with peroxide. A bath is painful when one is covered with gaping sores and scratches. Truth and light stings to the hurting who have sought refuge in their own pity. 
Friends, we cannot stay in the darkness. Because the darkness misshapes the soul. As we seek after created things, it blinds our eyes. It morphs us into golem-like creatures filled with self-centeredness and self-pity, greed. The people in darkness need the light, even if they step out of it slowly and gradually. Well, in this quest for consolation, Job moves on from the darkness into a seemingly deeper pit of despair in verses 11 and following, and begins to express a death wish. He asks in verse 11, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Death was preferable to suffering. Notice in the following verses how he paints this peaceful picture of death. Verse 13, I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. Verse 17, there the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Verse 18, captives also enjoy their ease. The slave is freed from master. Death seems to offer solution, consolation. Job is tempted to seek it for deliverance. And yet, as Scripture reveals, death is an enemy. Death is a scourge. It is not part of God's good order. Rather, it's a part of the curse. And we must not be tempted to seek it for refuge. I think that Job's sentiments here in chapter 3 are echoed today in our own culture of death. There are many advocates for what may be called mercy killing, whether it's euthanasia, abortion, or any other modern solution to the problem of pain and suffering. Death can be seen by some as a cure rather than the disease that it is. Those who are desperate are encouraged to take their own life, to escape their miseries. The premises go like this, that Better to kill an unwanted child or spare a deformed child the suffering he'll face in life. And those on the other end of life suffering terminal illness, the indignity of mental or physical degeneration, must have the right to assisted suicide to preserve that dignity, that control over that last final act of life and death. Such are the dilemmas in a modern age. The secular solutions to pain and death. It's clear that the, in American society, one of the most progressive, one of the most highest standard of living, one of the most remarkable societies ever in the history of the world, we have yet to solve these problems. We still have high rates of suicide, high rates of divorce and abortion and traffic fatalities and drug addictions. The pain and the misery go on and on. In the Bible, we see people giving in to their despair in acts of suicide. I can name at least three. There may be more. King Saul, who takes his own life falling upon his sword on the battle 
his final battle with the Philistines. Ahithophel, the counselor to David, the turncoat who goes over to Absalom, upon seeing that his advice will not be taken, realizes the coup is doomed, goes home to hang himself. And of course, there's the famous traitor, Judas himself, who in a swirl of self-pity and despair takes his own life rather than turn and repent for his betrayal. There are others. There are others who fall short of full suicide, but in some way or form express a kind of death wish. Moses, overwhelmed with the burden of leading an obstinate nation, cries out to God in the book of Numbers to simply end his life. The prophet Elijah, having prevailed against the prophets of Baal, now on the run for his life from the dreadful Queen Jezebel, cries out to God saying, I have had enough, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. God graciously relieves a depressed man, offering him food, rest, and reassurance. Jonah was angry enough to die. For God having the audacity to show mercy upon the Ninevites. Even the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.8 says that he and his companions despaired of life after great conflict in Asia. A culture of death offers a plethora of false sources to escape from pain and sorrow. Even the best of saints, as we've seen in Scripture, at times may long for death. Job even seems to give voice to the aged and the terminally ill when he writes, Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure. Well, as we come to the gospel, we are awakened and refreshed to realize that the real hidden treasure is not death, but life through Christ. What was hidden from Job is plain before us. Job, in his ignorance, knew little of God's full redemptive plan in the sending of his son. Friends, in Christ we discovered that the consolation of the problem of pain is not escaping into darkness to squash out the light. It's not in the refuge of death, but rather it's when we would see Jesus as the lasting absolution to our sorrow, the one who conquered sin and death. Death is a loser. Jesus has defeated it. May we align ourselves with the victor. Embrace the champion. That God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And we have a Savior who has not only redeemed us, but walks with us in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. Remember, Jesus wept. Wept at the throne, at the gravesite of Lazarus. Angered by the scourge of death. And he is the one who has conquered. Who has paved the way of victory, of life through death. And yes, lest Christ returns in our lifetime, we all will pass 
through death on the way to eternal life with Jesus. But that life is not just future, that life is here and now. As we abide with Christ by faith alone and find in Christ our joy and our satisfaction. He is the one who comforts us, who fills us with great gladness in the midst of great trial. Amazingly, after this passage, Job will persevere and pronounce great testimonies of faith. He will declare, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, 1925. And in a Remarkable expression of faith. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. 13, 15. Jesus will echo these words and passions of dear Job. It's Jesus who will fulfill the role of Isaac. The one who submitted to the will of his father. The one who took the blade, who was slain. Trusting in the will of his father. To provide a ransom. To secure the salvation for sinners. It's Jesus who gives us a whole new perspective on suffering. The one who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame. We will have many grounds I suspect for lamentation, for grief... But might we learn in this journey to take those laments to the cross. To not seek consolation in darkness or despair, nor in death. But in the precious arms of our Lord and Savior. And might we embrace the perspective of the Apostle Paul. A man who suffered much. And yet was convinced that his suffering was not in vain. But rather, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. May we hold on to that vision of glory and may Jesus grant us his grace and his peace as we find our rest in him alone. To God be the glory. Father, how remarkable